Welcome to Basecamp, where men meet together to seek deeper understanding of authentic manhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. The cross was the last thing anyone expected to happen. It was the one thing so many people tried to stop from happening. It was a basis on, on so much mockery about the divinity of Jesus. Okay, it was the basis for so much of that mockery. It seemed to defeat, it seemed to be a defeat over victory, triumph of mortality, the, de the deposition of the king. It made no sense. The cross seemed to turn the plans of the righteous upside down. It confirmed the sneers and the accusations of the unjust and the ungodly leveled against Jesus. It was the thing that should never be. And yet it was the thing that had to be. The cross is the most pivotal event in history. Apart from it, Luther argued, we can never truly know God or his plan of salvation. Thus, all of humanity falls into two camps, is what I submit to you. Those who consider the cross a meaningless event and those who embrace it as the basis of their only hope. Today, we're looking at Luke's account on that event, as I mentioned. Um, this is, once again, a super long passage. And... Um, we don't really have a lot of time to get into it for the next 15 minutes or so, uh, but I want you to get two things as we sort of jump across these verses uh, from this. Number one, how in its journey from the courthouse to Calvary, the cross divided people into these two camps, one for whom it is salvation and the other for whom it is destruction. And in how in all of that chaos that surrounded this, this, this time, the march of that cross never wavers. What God planned from the beginning setting the bedrock of our salvation was never deterred. It was planned, it had to happen, it was never not gonna happen, and in that, what is captured in the word of God, the gospel of the cross, truly divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges and thoughts, and judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The cross saves and the cross divides, but it never ceases. So the verses we're looking at today are, are in Luke. We're going to look at 23, uh, chapter 23, verses 26 to 49. If you want to uh, turn there in your Bibles, I'm also going to have them up here. They're also on your sheets. Um, but the, the journey begins right here with a story involving a Jew from Africa. When they led him, led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed him on the cross to carry behind Jesus. All right, Simon of Cyrene, who was he? He was among thousands of Jews who came to Jerusalem from other nations to celebrate the Feasts of Acts. He would have traveled more than 800 miles from Africa uh, to celebrate the Passover. I want you to think about that. Now, after such a long journey, and on the most holy day of, of, of the year for him, all his plans are completely disrupted. He's grabbed, he's pressed into service, forced to carry a cross, to the crucifixion site for, as far as he knew, some condemned criminal. After all of his long travels, after all of his planning, right, one doesn't make an 800-mile journey on foot or donkey lightly. Uh, but after all of this, his reward was this, to carry a cross. But after, but that which disrupted his day would become the thing that ultimately saves him. See, we've got really good reason to believe that Simon was converted because of this encounter with Jesus. Mark identified him as the father of Alexander and Rufus in uh, Mark 15, 21. 
And Rufus is believed to be the same Rufus that Paul greets at the close of Romans when he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Paul doesn't just put people lightly into his, his epistles. Um, this indicates that Rufus went on to become a very important and influential leader in the church, probably bringing many lives to salvation himself. And all of this because Simon took up the cross. See, that cross may have disrupted Simon's plans, but ultimately it saved his life and through him the lives of so many others. I'm not sure who said this, um, but someone once said that the problem with Christians today is that they're always looking for a lighter cross. They're looking for the easier path to salvation, and they're calling it, just as Simon was when he went there, just to go to the Holy Day um, events. They're looking for an easy way. They just want to show up for the festival, but not wear, bear the weight of the sacrifice. So the question is, we have to ask ourselves, are, are we that person? Are we looking for that lighter cross? Okay, moving on quickly. We come now next to the next passage. Uh, it says, And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? The woman here mourned and lamented the moment. In other words, they strongly desired that this wouldn't happen, this crucifixion wouldn't take place. But it had to happen. And Jesus uses this moment to warn the people that through condemning him, the city was condemning itself. But notice how Jesus redirects them. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because of what's going to happen. He's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans that would happen nearly 40 years later. If they do these things when I, God, am with you, what will they do when I am gone? That's that reference he says about the tree being green or the tree being dry. The event that Jesus warns of would not only destroy the temple and the whole city of Jerusalem, it would also put Jerusalem on a path of foreign occupation that lasts to this very day. Many of you have been to Jerusalem. Many of you may have stood up there on the Temple Mount and looked at the Dome of the Rock. It's still there. This would have been the outcome, though, of the false hope of those who continued to cling to the Temple and the Law for salvation. Again, the cross divides believers from non-believers. For believers, uh, those who experience God through what Jesus accomplished on the cross, there is forgiveness and restoration. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Uh, uh, there's forgiveness and restoration. But to those who experience, uh, no matter what happens on earth, but for unbelievers, the cruelty of this world and the death itself is, uh, is, is always present. Satan prowl, prowling like a hungry lion. It's eventually going to hunt them down. Weep for yourselves, Jesus says, because what I'm about to endure, as cruel and as excruciating as it will be, is the only hope you have. He suggests that those who reject him will face, like babies massacred by the Romans, it will be infinitely worse even than what he will endure. And that, why? Because it will be permanent. Weep, he says, because though I am the only hope you have, for many of you, you will realize that too late. Come moving on, he says, two others also uh, who were criminals were being led away to be, to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, where they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even their rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Again, looking very briefly at these verses, we see both the conviction and the consistency of the cross. They're intricately woven together. The conviction comes in the mockery of those who see the cross not as a means of salvation from God, but as a means of the termination of a man. These people are the epitome of unbelief. They fundamentally do not believe Jesus is who he claims to be. Indeed, Jesus highlights their ignorance in his renowned request of the Father for forgiveness. They do not know what they're doing, he says. That statement demands a whole passage, you know, a whole message by its own, which we're not going to delve into today, but I want you to catch that. He says, they do not know what they are doing, they're ignorant. And note the, the evil, uh, the depth of the evil of their unbelief as well. They see the cross as the final proof that Jesus is the only man, some probably, is only a man, some probably believing is even just another common criminal. If he was truly God, he surely would come off of it. In fact, he'd probably use it to pummel his persecutors into the ground. So they see the cross as precisely the opposite of what it is. They see it as a tool that kills a man claiming to be Messiah, rather than the means by which the true Messiah would deliver those who believe in him. And the sad thing is, this false distinction remains today. The cross still divides those set apart for eternity from those devoted to destruction. The mockers of the cross are still alive and well, and leading a great many to destruction. They despise the Savior, deride the cross, and mock those who believe. We also see in these verses testimony to the constancy of the cross. That is the absoluteness of the gospel truth and the concreteness and the consistence of God's plan, no matter what we experience. These people who mock Jesus don't even know it, but they themselves are fulfilling prophecy concerning him. When they gambled for his clothing, they fulfilled the, prof the prophecy of Psalm 22, 18. When they mocked him, they fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 22, 6 through 8. When the soldiers offered him vinegar to drink, they fulfilled the prophecy of Psalms 69, 21. In that darkest moment in history, when we see the Son of God hanging on a tree for our sin, God's still on the throne. His word is still in control. But one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, You are not the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, You do not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we are indeed suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here we have perhaps the starkest example of the cross dividing the saved from the unsaved, and that's these two thieves on the cross. One of those believers, the test tells us, was hurling abuse. You see the words hurling abuse at Jesus. That word, the word translating there as hurling abuse is actually blasphemous in, in the Greek, from where we get the word blasphemy. And it clearly is, that's, that's clearly what it is. Uh, but Luke uses it here not only to state that the man is committing blasphemy, but to underscore the severity of the insults. Blasphemy can also be interpreted to mean to rail at, to revile, as in to ridicule somebody with the utmost of scorn. To state the obvious, his level of belief, this thief's level of belief is off the charts. Unbelief, I should say, is off the charts. 
Again, he is one of the mockers. He says, save yourself. Oh, yeah, and while you're at it, save us. As if this is really going to happen. But the other, oh, the other, what hope we have from his faith. He rebukes this lost criminal, essentially saying, you don't even know what you're, who you're speaking to. He points out the other criminal's lack of fear of God. It's probably a theme throughout his life, and probably the reason he's up on the cross in the first place. Then the thief points to the truth at the heart of the gospel, that sinners are justified in their suffering, but the innocent are not As Paul wrote in Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I don't know that this thief understood what the cross would come to stand for, but he did believe one thing, that Jesus is who he claims to be. This is evident by his statement regarding Jesus' kingdom. And of course, in Jesus' awe-inspiring and loving response, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's the other thing the thief knew, and that is where he stood with respect to the sovereignty of God. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, says, All wicked men's pains and contrivance which they use to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ, and so remain wicked men, do not secure them from hell for one moment. He has a way with words, John, and they're pretty pointed. That's so true. This is the stance for those who mock the cross, even today. It's no coincidence that Jesus hung between these two men. For this scene, this moment serves as a sign to all people, a representation of the choice we all have to make about the cross. Both men were given equal access to the Savior. Both had the evidence. Both could read the sign above his head, this is the king of the Jews. And again, both had a choice to make. It's the same choice we all have to make. Either believe or don't. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. We're going to conclude with this. There's two observations from this very detailed account. The first is basically a continuation of the path of the cross bringing some to faith, and bringing the rest to condemnation. And we see here in God's plan, the centurion seems to gain faith. This account indicates that he, uh, only that he praised God and found Jesus to be innocent, but in the same account in Matthew and Mark, the centurion identifies Jesus as the Son of God, who he truly is. He presumably did so based on the evidence of destruction all around him. But don't lose sight here that God does not withhold faith even from the leader of the company that beat his son mercilessly and nailed him to the cross. If you don't have even the slightest inkling that your sin, or if you have even the slightest inkling that your sin is too great for God, you, my friend, don't have an unforgivable sin problem. You may have a hubris problem. Your sin is not so special, so great, so unimaginable and heinous to God that he's not going to see it and say, oh, well, that's too much for me. 
You and me, we're garden variety sin, no matter what we've done. So we got to let it go. Give it to Jesus. And get on with why he truly put us here. To believe in him and to share his good news. Here's the other observation. Though Luke describes the tearing of the veil and the darkness that covered the whole land, Matthew adds this, the earth shook and the rocks were split. In an event later that he later describes as an earthquake. That's in Matthew 27, 51 and 54. In other words, there was God-ordained chaos all around us, a sign of the world before he even spoke into it. Uh, yet in the midst of all of this, the cross stood. The cross that bore the, uh, the one who bore the weight of all sin for all men for all time still stood. It didn't stand in defiance of God, but rather in the fulfillment of his plan of salvation and as a testimony of his love for you and me. There are many who reject the cross. They see it as an abhorrent symbol of cruelty and destruction. For these, it will become just that. But if you see the cross as a symbol of this truth, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you see that love in the cross, it's a symbol of your salvation. I pray everybody in this room sees it that way. See, these are these times, there's a lot of wickedness in the world. A lot of, a lot of challenges that we face as Christians. Um, but no matter what may come, we have this. We have the cross. We have the truth which we can cling to. Okay, now I said a lot this morning and very little of it, probably very important. What's important is that we come before God this morning and we worship him. We worship Jesus for what he's done on that cross. So I'm gonna ask everyone.